0: You're listening, you're listening
1: to la. You're listening to Soundplay, a radio show that features audio work produced by students at Salem State University. We're your hosts.
0: I'm Tanya Rodriguez, a professor in English here at SSU.
1: And I'm Kaima, an English student with an affinity for French tea and poetry. We'll start the episode today with two 90-second episodes from a faux podcast Tanya made up for an assignment in her audio storytelling class. She called the podcast, Salem According to Sound, which is a direct derivative from the real podcast, The World According to Sound. The World According to Sound is a really interesting show in that it disrupts everything we think we know about what constitutes good storytelling. The two hosts, Chris Hoff and Sam Harnett created the show on the premise that they didn't want to tell listeners a story and how or what to think. Rather, they wanted to create opportunities for listeners to engage with sound and construct their own experience and interpretation of how that sound functions in the world. This show moves language and narration off center stage and replaces it with long unnarrated stretches of sound. This next Salem According to Sound episode is by Matt Elder. This sound is often employed by New Age practitioners and Buddhists to reach higher states of meditation, relaxation, and even healing. When water is added to the bowl, geometric shapes will form and change as specific resonances are achieved.
0: The next episode is composed by Savannah Colosi.
1: This is the sound of crackling firewood. The crackling and popping sounds happen when small amounts of combustion gases escape from the pores within the wood. For most, this sound is relaxing, but for some, these sounds harvest bad memories. The Great Fire of Salem, Massachusetts destroyed 1,376 buildings in June of 1914. A rapidly growing population led to overcrowded neighborhoods, and many safety protocols were bypassed. The fire started at Corn Leather Company and spread across the city for 13 hours, leaving thousands of people homeless and lost. sound play on 91.7 WMWM Salem. We'll be back after this message. Hey this is Dan Finnerty from the Dan Band. You're listening to WMWM 91.7 <laughs> Salem. Coffee Time has been a family owned and
2: operated bakery since 1978. They offer scratch made pies and scones and
1: now through Thanksgiving apple cider donuts and pumpkin cheesecake. Grab a fresh cup of coffee or real hot chocolate milk to go with your favorite treat. Coffee time, setting the
2: standard for homemade baked goods right here in Salem. Coffee time, 96 Bridge Street,
1: Route 1A in Salem.
0: Salem State University Radio. They must pay us millions to stop broadcasting. WMWM Salem, 91.7 FM and WMWM online.com.
1: I didn't want to talk. She just sat with me. That was all I really needed.
2: We got back. One day he called me out of the blue. And it's comforting to know that I always count on him to have my back. She called me from time to time. I really didn't think
0: I needed any help. It took me from being really depressed to feeling like somebody cared to give me some hope. Just that one text. Be there. Your call. Your presence. Your words. Your support. Be there and help save a life. Learn more about preventing suicide at
2: veteranscrisisline.net.
1: Welcome back, you're listening to Soundplay on 91.7 WMWM Salem. This episode's feature is on Jill Brown, who translated her life story into an inspirational speech and adapted that speech into an audio documentary. Next up is her story, entitled Christmas is Ruined.
2: It looks really different from up here. So it's really an honor to be counted among such a group of amazing women. I want to thank Melissa for that really warm welcome, and I'm really honored to be your participant speaker today. This event is such a special way for women to come together in support of each other. I've wanted to be a part of it since I came to work for Wellspring House three years ago, and something always got in the way. I had to be at a class, or I had to be at another job, So this year, Melissa asked me to speak, reminding me to be careful what you wish for. Wellspring has proved to be a source of community and has certainly lived up to its name and its mission for me and my family. But I'll talk more about that in a minute. First, I'd like to tell you about some of the women who've been placed along my path to guide and to love me. The face of poverty isn't always easy to recognize. Most of us have access to nice-looking clothes. We can go to a box store or a thrift shop and get an expensive-looking outfit for just a few dollars. I think there's a lot of $35 dresses in here today. (laughs) If we have a little bit of education and we're well-spoken, we can mask the fact that we didn't have enough money to pay the electric bill. Or we might not mention that we don't have what we need to cover the rent right now. Because there's shame and there's stigma in poverty. And that shame and stigma makes it hard for people to ask for help. I think that some folks assume that if you just try hard enough, if you just plan well, or if you do without some luxury, that you can make it work. But sometimes you just can't. I've lived in poverty for the majority of my life and put an awful lot of energy into not looking poor. I've learned to present myself in ways that masked my lack of money. As we had the help of all, all four of my grandparents and the rest of my family, and they fed us and watched us while my parents took turns going to work and putting each other through school. Both of my parents got their degrees and both eventually worked at Salem Hospital. My father ran the pulmonary function lab for years. My mom worked in the ICU in the emergency room And when she left there, she was the head of infection control. And ran their own home care company for 30 years. When I was a little kid, I thought that my parents ran the whole hospital. (laughs) So my parents were my example of what it meant to be part of a family. I've always been grateful for their support. There's a lot of people in poverty who don't have supportive families they're either forced to live away from their families or maybe they weren't shown how to support each other like I was. So I was also blessed with being, with the good fortune of being the only grandchild on my mom's side of the family for seven whole years before my brother came on. And I was the center of attention, I had a grandmother who could make anyone feel like they were the only person in the world, especially if you were her granddaughter. And when you walked into Mimi's house, you were home. She wore her glasses on a a crystal chain around her neck, and she'd throw them over her shoulder so that when she brought you in for a hug, she wouldn't crush you with them. She listened so intently to what you had to say, and she delighted in sharing your joy with you. She was Joy. She and my mom are the first women I think of when I think of what it means to be a woman and what it means to help other women. Then I started to have trouble in school almost right away. I started to hear phrases like, you're not even trying or you're not living up to your potential. So I started to fall behind and I never really got caught up. I did discover around this time that if I got sick in school, I could get dismissed. And if my parents were at work when I got dismissed, I could get dismissed to Mimi's house. So I did that whenever I had the opportunity, but they caught on to me after a little bit. My learning style just didn't match up with the curriculum of elementary school in the 1970s. Eventually, I had so much stress over not being able to live up to the expectations of the adults in my life, that I just gave up trying at around 11 or 12 I started smoking cigarettes and sneaking alcohol and I spent my teens drinking and doing drugs and getting into trouble it was starting to look like I wasn't going to graduate high school and I didn't really care I figured I'd just get a job and get my GED later After my 18th birthday my parents asked me to leave the house. They'd exhausted their knowledge of alcoholism and really just didn't know what to do with me anymore. Asking me to leave was the beginning of the end of my drinking and probably turned out to be the best thing they could have done for me. My time out of the house was pretty short. I spiraled pretty fast and ended up back home just a few months later promising to do better. And this set up a pattern of me dusting myself off so that I could fall on my face again. I was just starting to realize that I was not in control of my drinking, and I was using jobs and people to try and slow it down, but that I'd really lost the ability to stop. Something needed to change. It was during this time that I met my first husband and I became a mother. One day when my daughter Stephanie was two and I was 22. She asked me if I was rolling a joint. And I knew on a gut level her words hit me and I knew that she shouldn't know what I was talking about. So I tried to stop drinking and discovered that the harder I tried to stop, the harder I drank, and I was really scared. Somewhere in my, in my cloudy brain, there was a memory of going to an AA meeting when I was in high school. I'd had a brief um, period of sort of not drinking when I was trying to get enough credits to graduate with my class. So I went to meetings, and about a month later, I had my last drink. This October, I'll celebrate 26 years of sobriety. Thank you. Christine said that would happen. I know that's not typically how it happens. Many who struggle with substance abuse Return to drinking and drugging at least once. Some have periods of sobriety, and there are many, many others who never even have the idea of getting sober in the first place. Not to say that it was easy, because it wasn't. I think it's safe to say that my sanity was in question for quite some time, while my brain rewired itself. To all outward appearances, I was in worse shape after I stopped drinking than I ever was while I was drinking. My husband joined the Air Force and we moved as a family to North Carolina. I was nine months sober and I found myself in a trailer in a cornfield with a three-year-old. And I was in trouble. And then the world sent me another wonderful woman to love and support me. I asked Joyce to be my sponsor in the bathroom of a meeting in a church basement, which is a little bit like asking someone to be your Valentine. She eyed me up and down and she said, you're on step three, honey. Call me when you're ready to get to work. And then she tossed me her phone number and floated away. Well, I called her and she was right. She was usually right. And I hated that, how she was always right. Basically I trusted Joyce. I let her get to know me, and then she introduced me to myself. And in the process of that, she saved my life and my sanity. I had no sense of self without alcohol, and I had to become 11 again to find myself, and Joyce gave me a safe place to do that. I survived getting sober, but my marriage didn't survive my sobriety. And after a couple of years, I left North Carolina and I went home to my parents' house again. But only briefly i moved out to live with jen who was my best drinking buddy from high school she got sober a year and a half before me and we've been stuck together ever since we shared a home we went to meetings we worked and raised our kids together for four years we learned from each other about food food pantries and fuel assistance scheduling daycare around multiple jobs chasing child support advocating for our children in school systems that didn't always support their needs, filling out applications and what you need to say to a landlord to get them to rent to you when you have kids. We learned these things from each other because there wasn't anyone else there to teach them to us. Although I'd been a certified nursing assistant for a number of years, I worked during this time in a series of odds and ends jobs, bussing tables, industrial cleaning, landscaping, Painting houses, not making art. I even worked for the post office for a time. One of these jobs was driving for a chimney sweep. I met Brownie in 1996 at meetings and heard him say one day that he needed someone to drive him to jobs because he didn't have his license. Not only did I drive him from job to job, but I also learned to sweep chimneys, restore wood stoves, and do some masonry. I don't do that anymore, so don't ask. We spent every day together for a year, working, going to meetings, eating, and then going to work again. We became friends, and then we became best friends, and then we fell in love. We moved in together when our first child was born. My water broke on the day the movers came, just to keep things interesting. Caden was 18 weeks early. 18 months later, Emily was born. Also eight weeks early, apparently I'm a baby microwave. We married in 2001 on the roof of his grandmother's house. We actually found a fellow chimney sweep who was a pastor to perform the ceremony for us. Life was full and beautiful and busy. Our business was doing well enough for us to have three trucks on the road. Then life got complicated again, as it does. 9-11 happened, and the phone stopped ringing. Brownie's mother passed away, and I believe this is when he went back to using heroin. I didn't even know what was happening for at least a year. He grew away from me and started doing things that didn't make any sense, and spending money we didn't have on things we didn't need, and generally making things harder instead of working with me to make things easier. And then in 2003, Brownie had a mole removed from his chest, which, as it turned out, was melanoma. The next two and a half years was a tornado of surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, collections, the IRS. And then there were more tumors in the liver, the ribs, the sternum, the brain. There was pain, and there was pain medications, some hope, and many, many disappointments. Anyone who has had cancer in their lives knows how all-consuming that it is. The only accurate way I've ever found to describe this period in my life is to say that it felt like someone had my heart in their fist and they were squeezing it all day, every day, for two and a half years. And then on Christmas Eve 2005, Brownie died. My kids were 16, 7, and five. And on Christmas morning, Stephanie, my mother, and I told Caden and Emily that their father was dead. I was lost. (laughs) I was buried under a pile of debt. The business had fallen apart, and I had to start all over again. So I went to work part-time at my kids' school. I had to be there anyway, and the school community had been incredibly supportive of us during Brownie's illness. I was acutely aware that if one thing was different about my situation, that if I didn't have the support of my family, if I didn't have my sobriety or my sanity, if I wasn't always surrounded by supportive women, that I would have been on the streets with three kids, and I shuddered to think of what that might look like. So because of that awareness, I became curious about what went on in, at the homeless shelter in my community in Salem, and I applied for a job there. I spent seven years at that job, and as, is some, as it is sometimes with nonprofits, I wore many hats. From direct care to system development, case management, volunteer placement, and back to direct care. I learned an enormous amount about the causes and conditions of homelessness, poverty, and the approaches that work and some that don't work. I developed a passion for it and started back to school to improve my ability to be of service to vulnerable populations and to provide for my own family. I started small because I didn't have a lot of faith in myself as a student. First, I completed a one-year certificate program at North Shore Community College in mental health, and then I transferred into their health science associates degree program. It was at about this time that I came to work for Wellspring House as a weekend house manager at at the family shelter. I was filling in for Mary Hardwick sometimes at the Essex Street location making lunch for the staff, which by the way is one of my favorite things to do and Kay O'Rourke, the director of Wellspring at the time, told me one day about One Family Scholars. She said she would be happy to endorse me for their program. One Family Scholars is a scholarship program that supports single heads of household as they pursue their associates and bachelor's degrees. And I've just been accepted for my fourth year as a One Family Scholar which means that they've agreed to pay my tuition, supply expenses, and a monthly stipend so that I can finish my Bachelor of Health Science degree at Salem State. Some of the other supports that I've received from Wellspring include having a work mentor assigned to me work being the Wellspring Educational and Resource Collaborative. Patrick Delaney and Laura Perdone mentored me for two years while I finished my associate's degree and made my transition to Salem State. I've recently completed training to be a work mentor. Also during that time Wellspring House hired my daughter Emily with a grant from a program called First Jobs and she did the landscaping at Essex Street for a summer. This fall, I was a recipient of the Rogers Scholarship, thank you to the selection committee. The Rogers Scholarship is a flexible scholarship fund administered by Wellspring House. Most recently, I will be interning at Wellspring House next fall Mm -hmm. (laughs) as part of my capstone project. So, that's a lot. I don't know if I would have have been able to continue to Salem State to pursue my bachelor's degree if I had not had the supportive services of Wellspring in my corner. I know I'm not the conventional Wellspring House client, but because of their inventive style, they have found ways to support me anyway. I can think of no other organization that has so many dedicated staff, innovative programs, or such a dynamic legacy as Wellspring House and I'm proud and honored to claim it as my community. So today I ask all of you to continue to support Wellspring as they continue to embrace and support individuals and families like me and mine. And thank you all for being here today.
1: Tanya got the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with Jill about the experiences that inspired her speech in addition to the variance in the process of developing her speech versus her composition of the audio adaption. Here's a recording of that conversation.
0: Okay, so do you wanna tell us a little bit about the audio documentary? Sure.
2: I was taking the class as a um as an elective to finish my bachelor's degree um and I was really struggling because it was my last semester and decided to use the audio recording from a speech that I had given at a fundraising event a few years ago which was kind of telling my story with the intention of bringing awareness of about poverty and um like the face of poverty and how it doesn't always look like what you think it looks like. So I had a lot of stuff to work with to be because it was a pretty, about a 20-minute speech that I had already recorded, and I was able to kind of pick it apart and add some music to it and think about the meaning behind what I was trying to impart and how to make that work with different kinds of music and different kinds of editing to make a shorter piece that could be used for an assignment for the class.
0: Do you want to include any information about the fundraising event itself like what organization sponsored it and why they were doing so yeah
2: so I work for a non-profit in Gloucester called Wellspring House which has been around since the late 70s I believe and they engage with low-income and homeless individuals and families their focus is really on um on continuing education, education being um, a tool to help people to rise above poverty. Um, So I I went to work for them, but I was also able to utilize some of their services. So I'm an employee and a client of Wellspring House, and um, they were incredibly supportive of me. And when the new executive director, Melissa Diamond, took over, she asked me if I would be willing to tell my story um for their annual women's luncheon it's, she's actually changed the dynamic of the fundraiser a little bit so that it's not just a women's luncheon she's opened it up to um to be more inclusive and let other members of the community who aren't necessarily women participate which i think is really pretty pretty neat she's an amazing leader um so she asked me if I would be the keynote speaker for the fundraiser that year. And it's a charity luncheon that you know um folks in the community, supporters of Wellspring buy tickets to a lunch. and there's usually there's usually a participant speaker, which was my role that year. And I was actually followed by um or I followed um, Attorney General Maura Healey at that event, which I thought was a little bit backwards. I'm like, <laughs> shouldn't I be opening for her? But it didn't fall into place that way, so that was pretty funny. Um, and it was a really incredible experience for me to to talk about what had gone into me being able to support myself and my kids by myself and go to school and work sometimes sometimes five jobs at a time while going to school so that I could maintain my household while I was finishing my degree. And it was always a matter of course for me. It was always like, well, what do I need to do to get to the end of the week and put some food on the table and get my homework done? And I didn't really think about how intense and how... (laughs) daunting it was because I was just doing it I was just doing what was in front of me and I think that sharing my story with this particular group of people made me realize how incredible my accomplishment was and to get some recognition from people in the community who um came from amazing places like the Attorney General and people in education and people in public service who really supported what I was doing and and gave me some insight into how hard I actually was working because I I didn't realize it while I was doing it. You know, sometimes you're like think about things like that afterwards and you're like, How did I even do that? How did (laughs) how did I do that? And you just do. You do what's in front of you in the moment so that you can get to the next moment
0: (laughs) self it's kind of like your your mind
2: protects you it's like self-preservation
0: you don't even have like the time or the inclination to reflect on yeah the wildness of your life and all of the things that you need to do especially when you have children, because it's yeah. like, you know, you need to take care of your kids. Absolute,
2: absolutely. You. And, the, and the other thing that I think that it really brought into perspective for me was the, the way that I constructed the speech was around women in my life who were supportive of me through my story. And I talk about my mom and my grandmother. I talk about my sponsor from Alcoholics Anonymous. And I talk about um, mentors and mentors and teachers and just women who reached out to, to help me. And I think that we missed that a lot. Like there's a lot of um, <laughs> women don't always support each other. Sometimes we tend to be threatened by each other and compete with each other instead of being mentors to each other. And um, that wasn't my experience in a lot of cases. And the women that I talk about in the speech are the women who you know, grabbed a hold of me and pulled me up instead of stepping over me to get where they were going. <laughs> and and that's what I want to bring into when I start my new job <laughs> on Monday. I want to be that kind of a leader. I want to be the kind of leader that my doors open and you come in and tell me what's going on and then we figure it out and i see your i see your strengths and i partner them with my strengths and we make something new out of those two things so that's the example that i was given by all the women i talk about in the speech and that's the kind of leader that i hope to be when i go back into the workforce
0: mm-hmm. I know a little bit about your process for composing this speech, and that you worked with people and one person in particular, right, and I they had gave a coach, you. Yeah. Okay, so do you want to talk a little bit about your process for composing the speech to deliver at the fundraiser itself? Yeah. Um, I, th- I think it, it was kind of
2: my idea that I wanted to chronologically tell the story of women who came into my life at the time that I needed their support. So I go from, you know, my mom and my grandmother being my powers of example when I was a kid, and then teachers that I had in high school, um, the sponsor that I had when I was getting clean, which I did when I was pretty young, and then the rest of the women in the story are women that I worked with, women that, um, that I lived with, my my roommate I talk about a lot, and she's still my best friend. We've been best friends since we were seventeen years old. Um, and then, when I was as in my professional life and, and in college, where I had teachers and coworkers and supervisors who fostered my strengths and um, saw things in me that I couldn't necessarily see, and kind of set me up for success and pulled those things out of me and gave me. Um, opportunities to express myself in ways that I might not have thought to do myself, you know. Um, So the woman that helped me, Christine, came to me at work every week for two months, and we edited and re-edited and took things out and put things back in, and I practiced delivering the speech to her and her husband a few times. Um, I probably practiced the speech six times in total before I gave it to a banquet hall with 700 people in it. (laughs) And I, you know, I spoke a lot in AA over the years and sometimes to pretty big rooms full of people. But this was a much different delivery, I guess. It was framed differently. It was more structured. I think Any time that I've spoken in the past at meetings, it was kind of almost like channeling. It was like whatever was going on in the meeting and then you let come out whatever comes out. And this was different. This was like structured and you're going to say what's written down. And so it was a much different delivery method and much different than what I was used to as far as public speaking went but it was a great learning experience. It was really, plus the subject matter was so personal that um, you really have to do the work around the subject matter in order to be able to speak publicly about it. You can't be in the throes of the emotional ramifications of something like that and speak about it even keeled at the same time. You've got to like do the work you have to do the work before you can speak about it comfortably yeah, that's really and I think that comes across when you're listening to a speaker Oh yeah, for sure
0: yeah so you had a pretty lengthy composing process with your speech and you created this as a speech to be delivered to a room full of people mm-hmm. with the audio documentary you know it was a different kind of composing process it was a different kind of audience, right? And so we imagined that our audience would be, you know, listener, radio listeners, right? Yeah. And you also had all various kinds of other things to work with. So not just the words on the page, but you had sound effects, you had music, you had silence. All of these things that you could employ to tell... Um, a kind of version of the of the speech that you gave to a room full of people, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your composing process mm-hmm. for the audio documentary. yeah,
2: I knew it needed to be much shorter than the than the speech itself was, so there was a lot of um, <clears throat> looking at dead time, like pauses and things in between. So the, so the speech was written in sections, and I covered a subject in each. And then there were times in between where there was deliberate pauses for breathing and stuff like that. And I edited some of those out just to kind of condense the total length of the piece. Um, and then, you know, listening, listening to segments so that I could decide when to take out like applause and things like that, and sometimes the applause were very um, nuanced in te- in getting the point across. Like the things that people applauded for while I was a sp- while I was speaking, um, kind of drove it home a little bit. Like when I when I say how long I've been sober, and the whole room burst into applause, and I like wasn't expecting it because again. I take for granted that I've gone a day without a drink for 27 years because that's what I do every day. But for somebody who can't do that, (laughs) that was a big deal. Um, So leaving some of that applause in and not taking it out, but in other places I was able to, like, take out the audience reaction to get the piece a little bit smaller. Um, So that was one thing I looked at. And then, like creating the mood with music was it really interesting it was like what pieces of music are going to embody the feeling that I'm trying to impart like when you because on the in audio you don't have the visual so in the room I was standing there being my nervous sweaty self and everybody got that right but or when I started to talk about something that was close to my heart like my grandmother for instance I was talking about her and you can see when I talk about my grandmother how much I love her and how much she was my best friend in the whole world and how losing her tore a piece of my heart out right (laughs) and you can see that on my face when I talk about it but when you're when it's an audio piece it has to come across in another way so I found a recording of her favorite song which happens to also portray that emotion very very well so i used claire de and it was perfect for the audio piece right and um and it wasn't even intentional that i set out to find a piece of music that would portray that it was her favorite song so that emotion is translated because all of mm-hmm. those things are attached to it right um and then and then the it's kind of sad Christmas song that I found was actually called Christmas is Ruined.' And I was like, Oh my God, there couldn't be a more perfect song <laughs> because Christmas was ruined, and Christmas has been ruined for us since then, right? and And we've adapted and we've created ritual to make to reclaim Christmas for ourselves as a family, but it still destroyed Christmas for us, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So. Yeah, so the music was really, really interesting and working with that. And then some sound effects. I did the like breaking glass thing when I was talking about my drinking, and that's what it was like. It was like every time you open a bottle, you break something, (laughs) right? Every time you take a drink, something else inside you gets broken. Every time you get in trouble or pay a consequence because drinking was more important than doing something else, You break something. So the breaking glass sound effect kind of...
0: Functioned in all different kinds of ways. Yeah, yeah.
2: Conveying meaning. Yeah. Sometimes that's what the end of a night sounded like. (laughs) Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Great. That
0: was great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Again, that was Jill Brown talking about her audio documentary, Christmas is Ruined. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear a new episode of Soundplay. Have a good one.